Did you hear about that sister who took Ovacetol and finally got her period after a year of not having one? Incredible. I see those kinds of messages on Instagram a lot. How does that even happen? Well, Ovacetol helps with healing insulin resistance, a common root issue that most PCOS sisters have. And by targeting insulin resistance, we're seeing sisters kick those crazy cravings, finally regulate their periods, ovulate, and improve their egg quality. Each packet of Ovacetol has a 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol and D-chiro-inositol. This ratio is similar to the ratio that should be found in the body, but with women like like me who have PCOS, this ratio is often imbalanced. So taking Ovacetol can be super effective in treating insulin resistance starting from the root of the issue. So awesome. It tastes like nothing. So just warn me when you put it in a cup so I don't drink it. You got it, boo. Check out the link in the description to get 15% off your order. All right, babe, let's take a moment to correct our posture, take a deep breath and have some pure spectrum CBD. Sure. Hey sisters, CBD can help with acne, inflammation, anxiety, sleep, and so many other PCOS symptoms. I personally take it throughout the day to help keep my stress hormones nice and low. Not to mention, I sleep like a baby every night and I don't wake up fatigued at all. Now open your mouth please so I can give you a serving. Ah. Uh... Now hold it for 60 seconds. Head over to PureSpectrumCBD.com and use the code THESISTERHOOD, one word, for 10% off. Can I stop now? Nope, you got 30 more seconds. Doctor said you got PCOS, now go on girl, just lose some weight. Till I took the symptoms into my own hands and reversed them naturally. So I became a dietitian to help my sisters feel the best they've ever felt. Take a step in my direction if you wanna put them wrong. Control of yourself Join a sister and a mister 3,2,1, action Welcome everybody to another episode of A Sister and Her Mister Today we have one of my gynecologists, Dr. Phyllis Gersh She is a multi-award winning physician with dual board certification in OBGYN and integrative medicine. She is the founder and the director of the integrative medical group in Irvine, where women can be treated in a comprehensive way by combining conventional naturopathic and holistic medicine. She's also the best-selling author of PCOS SOS. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, welcome. Oh, it's aptly my pleasure. I just enjoy so much chatting with you guys. Oh, same, same. We were talking about before the podcast started, uh, just a week ago, we went camping and we took your book to, to read up about PCOS. <laughs> and it's one of my favorites because I love how you talk about in the beginning about your experience and then your daughter's experience and how you helped her. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good read. That's amazing. Well, thank you. And there's nothing that sort of rings more true than when it really hits you and your family members. And I know that it's such an epidemic now with PCOS worldwide that almost everyone has someone they care about who is dealing with this problem today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you had mentioned in your book that you have PCOS yourself, but you're managing it very effectively, obviously. <laughs> yes. Uh, I had to make my own diagnosis uh -huh. way back, way back when I was um, in medical school, I actually 
you know, knew there was clearly a problem because I hadn't had a period for two years. And I also had a lot of acne and I just didn't know really what to do about it because I'd been to many dermatologists and nobody was really helping me. And, uh, you know, it was so frustrating. And then I went to see one of the really big hotshot doctors at my medical school in the OBGYN department who just really was very flippant and just said, like, what do you care? Women don't even like their periods anyway. Just go on birth control pills oh and, um, you know, like, have a nice day. There's the door, basically. And it was like, but there's something wrong with me. And that was just not an interest. And actually, you know, fast forward to today, and for many patients, they're getting the same treatment. Yes. Yeah. And I, the only difference is nobody told me what was wrong with me in terms of just giving me a label. Of course, nobody would say anything. Why is this happening? Anyway, that doesn't really come up today either. But mm. you just get a label, but getting a label has only value if it serves a purpose for actually doing something with that information. And nowadays it's back to the same thing. It's, you know, the only thing they've added in is like maybe spironolactone and maybe metformin, you know, for, you know, they have some benefits and they also have some drawbacks, but neither of them, none of these medications, of course, get to the underlying issues, which I was so, you know, desperately wanting. And then it took me many decades before I actually came to understand PCOS. And of course, we're still learning more about it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. There's so much research that still needs to be done. In your book, you actually talk about how old PCOS is. You talk about how it's almost 50,000 years old. You know, it's been around for a long time. Wow. And you talk about in its mild form, it can actually be a gift. So I was wondering if you would tell us more about the origins of PCOS and how we can apply it to our lives as a gift. Well, I always like to think that genetics are a tendency, they're not a destiny. And so when you go back and you look at some of the, 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 the genetics that are involved with PCOS, it turns out that way back when, you know, when women were living in a tribal society and they ate natural foods, cause that's all that was available. They had built into their bodies a little bit of a deficiency in their ability to convert testosterone into estradiol, the, the ovarian produced type of estrogen. And there's an enzyme that does that. It's called aromatase. And all estrogen comes from testosterone in the ovary. And a lot of people don't realize it. Well, it turned out because there was this little mild deficiency, there'd be a little excessive amount of testosterone and a little tiny bit of deficiency of estrogen, but very, very mild, not enough to give any visible, you know, like facial hair or acne or anything like that, just enough to maybe slightly reduce fertility, which actually was a benefit because nobody had built in birth control of any sort. Mm -hmm. And the more babies you had, the more challenges you had to your health and even to your mortality because people, of course, women died in childbirth. And of course, babies and newborns, when they're nursing, they take whatever they need from the mom. So women could get very seriously iron deficient, nutrient deficient, and you know, if they had one baby after another, that's a real challenge. And each child would have less chance of survival. So maybe instead of having like eight or nine kids, you had four or five. That's actually a plus and for everyone involved. And in addition, because of that little bit of extra testosterone, those were the women who were like the leaders of their tribe. They had a little bit more maybe outgoingness. They were a little bit braver, stronger, bolder. 
And we now know that when they've tested women who are gold medal Olympians, that when they have the mild form of PCOS, they actually make up a high number of the winners with the gold medals. So it made them more competitive. So I like to think that this was like a built-in little advantage that you had a few fewer children, but you were still fertile. You were a little bit more dominant, a little bit braver, bolder. And, you know, you ended up being the leaders. So we'll, I say like, go back to your origins. If we could just turn the clock back and we eat the right foods, we live the right lifestyle we can actually harness those inner powers of those early prehistoric women who you're descended from, right? Because these are the same (laughs) genes that you harbor. And you too can become like the equivalent of Olympic gold medal winner. And you can do that. We just have to work a little bit harder than the average woman to get to that optimal state of health. Yeah. What a beautiful response. Know, <laughs> what a beautiful outlook of PCOS. So inspirational. It's so inspirational because it's like a, it's like a gift or an advantage and just something that like you have to control and once you do like you can really use it to your advantage to become a leader in mm-hmm. like anything. Right. Speaking of circadian rhythms, please I love when you talk about this in your book. Yeah. Tell us more about how circadian rhythms affect our hormones, what we can do in our day-to-day lives to get ourselves back with the beat and living with on beat, basically. <laughs> I think you mentioned well, that in your book. Yes, I'd say like living to the beat. We've got to get back beat. with that. And we got to get, you know, kind of, you know, the, and this has been, analogy has been used in a number of different cases. If you think of the master clock that sits in the brain, in the hypothalamus atop the optic nerve, the optic nerve is the one that goes to the eye. And of course, is involved in vision. And there are special receptors in the retina of the eye that can detect light. And it feeds through the special, the neural connection into this area of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's a group of neurons in this area that we now call the master clock. And it can sense when it's light. And so it can keep track of a bunch of things and it helps to set the beat. So think of it like the conductor of all the organs in your body. And it puts out signals so that everything works with beautiful synchrony. And but a lot of people don't know this. Like everything in the body has to be working together. You know, it would be like the orchestra. If you had the strings, you know, they're like the piano is playing one thing and then the violins are playing at a different measure and then the trombones are off just two notes. You know, after a while, it's not beautiful music, it's nothing but noise. And that's what happens in the body. We would call that sort of metabolic chaos, but we want metabolic homeostasis. We want everything to be working in this calm unison. And that's what the master clock helps. Well, it turns out that estrogen, the form that the ovaries make, estradiol, is actually present in terms of receptor function on these groups of neurons. And so if you don't have the right estrogen production in the right type of rhythm, it's not just having it, it's like everything, it's having the right amount, and also having it at the right time and with the right proportions, the right rhythms. If you don't have that, then your master clock becomes a little bit, we'll say, you know, wacky, you know, basically it will become off the beat so that you're not really working properly all all of your organs together. And so every morning when you wake up, you need to have bright light. And because the master clock actually needs that 
Otherwise, the word that's used is drifting. It just kind of drifts off the beat like one or two notes, and it needs that bright light to help get back on the beat. That's why there are people who have types of blindness, for example, where they see not even light. They can't see any light, and they have tremendous problems emotionally, metabolically, and that's a big, big deal because you need that bright light. That's why living in a dark cave all the time or where you don't have the proper types of light and the, the, the types of rays of the sun to actually set this master clock every morning, you also, even without PCOS, you'll have this problem of circadian dysfunction. Well, women with PCOS, because they don't make the right amount of estrogen, they actually start having a little bit of alteration of the function of their master clock. Well, where do we know about this? We know about a lot of problems with people who suffer from jet lag. So mm -hmm. jet lag can be because you're always flying across different time zones. It can also be what we call social jet lag, where you may stay up some nights till three o'clock in the morning, another day you stay up till midnight, you know, you go to bed at all different times, you eat at all different times, that's social jet lag. But whether it's social jet lag or you work a night shift, for example, like, like me, I worked doing so much work at night, delivering babies at night all the time for 25 years. And there are a lot of other people in the police department, fire department, of course, in hospitals that have to work at night. Something like 25% of the population works during some of the night hours. Mm -hmm. And they don't do it like every single day. So it's varied from day to day. Sometimes you work at night, sometimes you have days off and so on. And so they will have a jet lag situation. Well, what do we know about people who have jet lag? They have a lot of problems. They have more diabetes, obesity, depression, anxiety, irregular cycles, weight gain, you know, mm -hmm. every kind of mood disorder, like yeah. I said, anxiety, depression, everything, and sleep problems, poor sleep quality, their insulin levels stay high. A lot of the same things that happen to women with PCOS. When you look at it, and it's really amazing, and it's bi-directional in terms of like, when you have jet lag, you're going to have much more problems with your periods. You're going to have a lot of irregular cycles. But then also, if you have irregular cycles and you don't make estrogen properly, you're going to then have problems back with your master clock. So it's bi-directional. So, you know, it's kind of like spiraling down the, you know, the more time that goes by that you're in this kind of a state. So women with PCOS are living essentially a life of jet lag with all those problems that are associated with jet lag. So it's no wonder that if you look at their issues, they have so many issues with mood disorders, anxiety, depression, sleep quality problems, weight gain, um, you know, irritable bowel, diabetes, insulin resistance, weight gain, all of the problems that women with PCOS have actually are the same kinds of problems that people have with jet lag, only maybe mm -hmm. more severe because they have th these other problems that we'll discuss relating to their gut dysbiosis and relating to other issues that correlate with having problems with their ovarian function, making the estrogen. And then of course, they are associated in almost every case. And this has been controversial depending on the organization, whether it's mandatory for women with PCOS to have androgen excess or not. Um, I always believe it really does. It, it, if you have something that's PCOS and it, they don't have any manifestations or lab testing that shows elevated androgens, those are like testosterone, DHA, mm -hmm. sulfate, the androgens that are like male type hormones, you do have a problem, but it should be called something else. But mm -hmm. the committee says it's a different type of PCOS, but 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I don't, you know, they didn't ask my opinion. That should be something else, but because they just don't have, because the really a very key part for the vast majority of women with PCOS is androgen excess in the form typically, the most common, like 85 to 90% would be testosterone. And so once you have high testosterone, that in turn creates a number of additional problems. So it's like women with PCOS have all the problems of women living with real jet lag from working at night or crossing um, time zones. And then they have all these added problems on top of that. So it's like jet lag plus type. <laughs> so w- when it comes to the circadian rhythm, obviously it's very essential to, to, to manage that. What would be, do you have any go-to tips or like just some, some like top five things you, you could say to the sisters listening that they could help improve their circadian rhythm? Absolutely. They, like, for example, there was one study. Now, one of the hormones, everything in the body is circadian, but some are more dramatically so. So mm-hmm. one of the hormones that a lot of people knew, do know about that is circadian is the hormone from the adrenal gland called cortisol. And cortisol should have a really high production in the morning. And it helps like make you alert. It, mm-hmm. it also makes you hungry. It, it, it gives you some insulin resistance so that it will raise your blood sugar because you know at that point you haven't eaten and yet you need to do something, right? You're awake, you need to get going. So cortisol should be really high in the morning, but at night it should really be dropping, be really low. And on the flip side, you have melatonin, which is sort of like the opposite. So melatonin should really be shut down in the morning mm-hmm. and at night it should be rising. So you have this beautiful, like, you know, yin yang between the cortisol and the melatonin. So when people live a life of jet lag, like women with PCOS, they tend to be tired in the morning. Their melatonin is probably higher than it should be. And so they feel still groggy. Like they just took a big dose of melatonin. They're kind of groggy in the morning. They need a lot of coffee and so on. And then at night when they should be getting sleepy and their melatonin should be going up, the melatonin isn't, but their cortisol is actually spiking. And they have studies to show that. And so they're feeling alert. They're feeling energized. And guess what? They're feeling hungry. And that's why they get like the night munchies. It's like, gee, I want to go eat food. And it's like 10 o'clock at night. So Mm -hmm. it's like they say, I'm a night owl. Well, of course, then they eat at night. And that's what happens in the morning or should happen when you have a dramatic increase in terms of your cortisol. It should make you hungry. Let me get something here. And so what can we do? Well, we can take some supplemental melatonin at night to help promote sleep, but just a little bit to start. I'd like to start very little. And if you take about two hours before bedtime, if you take about half a milligram, it's not enough to make you wanna go to sleep. It's a two hours before you're going to sleep. And you can even experiment a little earlier. It just sort of helps to drive down the cortisol to just Mm -hmm. try to get it to go down and to sort of get your body in the mood, like just alert your, all the organs of your body, sleep should be coming. And then right at bedtime, if you need more, just try one milligram, like about a half an hour before bed to just help you ease into sleep, not wallop you with a gigantic dose of melatonin, just to help you ease into sleep. The other thing is using light therapy in the morning. So when you wake up, what you want is that bright light to really shut down. When you have the bright light, it will help to shut down the the melatonin and cause your cortisol to come up. 
So you want to get, if you can't get out in the sun, and especially in the winter, there is no bright sun sometimes when we wake up. And even when we do live in a time of year when there's bright sun, we may be busy in the house. We can't just get outside and be sitting out in the sun. So you can buy a light box. And what you would do, they, they're all over the place, easy to get, not expensive. And you put it at the setting for 10,000 lux, that's L-U-X-E, 10,000 mm -hmm. lux. And then you just put it near you. And then that bright light for 30 minutes every morning. And then if you can do it for another 30 minutes in the middle of the day, that will really help to set that, you know, that bright light will go in, it will hit the receptors, go to the master clock and help to keep it from drifting, help it to get reset. So that light therapy, by the way, has been used for seasonal affective disorder for ages. So seasonal affective disorder is depression that often sets in in people who live at the the northernmost or the you know the southernmost, depending on the time of year, when they have like night that lasts for like twenty hours a day, yeah, right? Yeah. Where there's and, and of course in the summer then it's the opposite. They never really get dark. They just get a little dusky and then it's bright light again. But at in the winter, it's horrendous. It's like there's almost no sun. It's like dark, 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 and then a little dusky and a little bit of light, but not much. So people have a lot of depression. So using light therapy can be really helpful. It's also been shown that it can help with um, women who have like premenstrual syndrome. It can even help with people who have other different types of psychiatric illness when they use it, you know, under psychiatric care. So, but for women with PCOS, it can be a lifesaver, really. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I've seen such a difference. Now at night, it's really important to be in a very dark room because there's data to show that even a little bit of light filtering in through your eyelids will actually slow the production and drop the production of melatonin, which you desperately need. The more I learn about melatonin, the more I'm in awe of melatonin. Mm -hmm. Melatonin is about way more than just helping you sleep. It's about glucose regulation. That's one of the reasons why people don't get enough sleep at night are more prone to diabetes. It's, you know, one of the most potent antioxidants of the body. So it reduces yeah. inflammation. It's amazing. You know, yeah. melatonin is absolutely amazing. And you don't make it if you don't get a dark room and you get sleep because yeah. melatonin is just not going to be made in any substantial amount. If you're wide awake in the middle of the night, it's not going to happen. So I sleep, for example, with a sleep mask because I cannot get my room to be pitch black. And, you know, I don't really feel like putting um, like the completely um, dark blinds on my, on my windows. Cause when I get up in the morning, I like there to be some light. So you have to, there's these trade-offs. So what I do is I found, and I've tried a bunch of different types, a sleep mask that I find is perfectly comfortable. I don't have any problem sleeping with it. In fact, it makes me feel kind of cozy now. I'm sort of used to it. You know, yeah, so, we're, all, you know, we're all used to masks now. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Now you can't see and everything's covered right then at night. So, um, but I feel very comfortable with it. And they, they come in different styles and such. Um, and what I do is I wake up in the morning, I wake up naturally, and then I just take it off and I leave my eyes closed and let the natural room light filter through my, my eyelids. And then I just, you know, after a little while, you know, I just get up. And, um, you know, even if, on occasion, if I don't wake up, I always set my alarm to be just a little bit earlier than I really need it to be. 
And then what I will do is just turn, you know, I can just feel it and I just turn off the alarm and I still keep my sleep mask on to let the natural light filter through because that works better. It's kind of like a dawn simulator through your, by doing oh, it, that it. Way. which people can buy, by the way, if you have a really pitch black room, you can get a dawn simulator that will have like the, the sun rising kind of thing. Amazing. And then the light comes up because that's natural. The more we get back to our origins about how we evolved as far as sleep and light the, the much better health will attain. So for women with PCOS, they really need to work at this. So, and then the other thing is you have to be rigid in terms of your schedule. You just can't like be doing the social jet lag and like staying up at different odd hours in the night and on the weekends. You can't do that. It's not good for you. So you need to go to bed preferably around 10 p.m., but no later than 11, because mm -hmm. our melatonin typically peaks around two in the morning. That also is the time when our cortisol is, is really plummeted and our brain flow of blood is maximized. So we have this incredible flow of blood to the brain, which we know is key for everything that the brain does in terms of brain health. And that isn't going to happen if you go to bed at the wrong time. Sleep phases are critically important. And women with PCOS have high rates of sleep disordered breathing. So for many of my patients with PCOS, I will order a home sleep study, which are covered by insurance. All the insurances cover them. And they're so easy now because they're done at home. So you don't have to go to the fancy, you know, centers where, you know, they wire you all up and everything else. Sometimes that has to happen afterwards, if depending on what's found. But the vast majority, you don't have to do that anymore. You get a home sleep study, which is easy. And so it's very simple for me to order that. And it's really important because if you have untreated sleep disordered breathing and they come in at different types, then it's really hard to lose weight. You just don't feel well and you just can't really get a good night's sleep. And it's one of, it's not that you have to be treated forever. It's one of those funny deals. If you don't sleep well, you can't heal. And if you can't heal, then you can't sleep well. But if you can sleep well by having treatment for your sleep disordered breathing, then you can heal, then you can get rid of the sleep treatment. So it's yeah. not, I don't, I like to think of a lot of the conventional medical treatments as a bridge to health, as opposed to you're stuck for life. You know, even pharmaceuticals, sometimes I do have to prescribe pharmaceuticals. There are some women with PCOS who could be 150 pounds overweight. And you know what? They're appetite dysregulation is so severe and their moods are so off and so much of their body is so metabolically dysregulated. It's really hard for them to work on willpower. You know, if I tell them what to do, like we'll talk about like when you should eat, what you should eat, like they just can't do it because their brain is not really serving their needs at this point. So sometimes pharmaceuticals can help and you, but you only use them for maybe a few months and you can help someone to get back on track and then you can take them away, kind of like training wheels. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, like in my books, everything that's all about self-help. But, you know, I want people to know that if you can't do it, which like say 90% of people are successful just with lifestyle, that's still these 10%. So, mm -hmm. and so if you need some other interventions, if you need a sleep study, if you need to be on pharmaceuticals for a while, it's not a failure. You just do it, but you realize that there's an exit strategy. As you probably well know, most times when people are put on these drugs, there really isn't an exit strategy, meaning at a certain point, you could take the drugs away and you'll actually be well. We know that that isn't the, the strategy. There is no strategy. You just go on the drugs and 
you know, maybe by the time you want to get off, you'll have a different doctor. Maybe that's yeah. the strategy, you know, yeah. it's like, it won't be my problem when you get off the birth control pills and all these drugs and you want to get pregnant and like you're a complete disaster, which mm -hmm. is what often happens when you mm -hmm. take these drugs away and you have had no underlying health strategy, you know, you've done nothing and then you just take the drugs away. And it's like a disaster, but that's not our strategy. So I just like people to know that if you're in that category that you need extra help, that's okay. You know, that's okay. We just do what we have to do and then get you back on track. If you kind of fell off the track a little bit and you need more help, but um, just doing a lot of the lifestyle things, mm -hmm. like I said, for 90% of people, they can tremendously overcome all of their PCOS problems. It's, it's amazing. I've, I've had people lose 60 pounds in maybe, I mean, I'm always realistic, like maybe that took a year and a half. I'm not saying three months. That's ridiculous, you know, but maybe, and, but they keep it off because they have yeah. metabolically modified themselves. They haven't just I done starvation that. diets. And then of course they always regain it. It's like, when are people going to learn that that doesn't work? You know, that's, yeah. it's like, it doesn't work. You may lose weight, but you're also going to lose lean body mass and you're not doing anything to fix any of the underlying real issues. So, but circadian yeah. rhythm, you have to, you cannot be well if you don't get sleep. So you have to go to bed and, you know, that's why we give you some help. And then if some people need extra help, they may need some other herbals like L-theanine, they might need ashwagandha, there's, you know, a whole slew of different relaxation herbals, passion flower, lemon balm, this, CBD. you know, so, yeah. and oh, and yeah, and CBD. And it's interesting, like there is very little research on CBD and women with PCOS. But the, the whole, and we could talk about that like another time, or we could talk about it Let's now jump too. In. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I didn't actually talk about the endocannabinoid system at all in my, in my book, but um, it's coming really into the forefront. There was really no research on it. So I didn't like, you know, I don't want to, you know, as you know, from reading the book, it has hundreds of references. So without any research, it's hard to talk about something altogether, but there's been a little bit now, just a little bit, because there's never enough research on PCOS, but there's yeah. been a lot more research in other conditions, we'll say somewhat comparable. Sometimes we have to make a little bit of a leap of faith that people who have prediabetes, you know, that type of thing, or even, you know, full-blown diabetes, they have metabolic syndrome, that they do have a fair amount of metabolic dysfunction in common with women with PCOS. Even if the underlying issues were not really the same, they still have these metabolic issues that are mm. very comparable. And so now we know that when people have metabolic syndrome, they have a complete dysregulation of their endocannabinoid system. So endocannabinoids are lipid signaling agents derived from a fatty acid of the family called omega-6. So, you know, there's probably people have heard there's omega-3, there's omega-6, there's also omega-9, which we won't go into, but omega-6 is the forms the precursors of a whole bunch of lipid signaling agents. So they're like communicators. So we now know, we did not know this until relatively recently, that signaling agents, in other words, information deliverers in the body can be made from amino acids. They're the building blocks of proteins. And when you have small numbers of amino acids linked together, those are called peptides. Mm -hmm. When they're longer, numbers of amino acid chains, those are called hormones and neurotransmitters, okay? But when they're lipids, they're, they create other signaling agents that are called endocannabinoids, 
that are derived from omega-6. And then there's another whole group from omega-3 that are called protectins and resolvins. And, and there's this incredible interconnection between all these different signaling agents and hormones. Well, it turns out that hormones and the endocannabinoid system are completely linked together in the mm -hmm. female menstrual cycle. So this is like, and, and also in every aspect of reproduction, it turns out that estradiol actually increases the production and the levels of one of the endocannabinoids called anandamide. Now anandamide has um, like what you might call a phony baloney out there called cannabis. So cannabis has different types of you know, compounds within it that actually combine to our own receptors. So they're not, it's like phytoestrogens from plants can bind to estrogen receptors, but they're not actually estrogens from our body. They're actually, it's a miracle. Like how come this plant has a substance that binds to our receptors, you know, and can, act, and, excuse me, and can actually be helpful? Well, it turns out that the endocannabinoids can bind to our receptors too. And it turns out that they can have profound effects. And THC is the actual endocannabinoid that's kind of similar in its binding properties to anandamide, which is why reproductive aged women should stay far away from marijuana because the THC is not found in hemp. It's only found in cannabis from marijuana and it can totally mess up a woman's menstrual cycle. It can make oh, her more wow. infertile. So I want to make this clear. Women with PCOS in particular, but really any women of reproductive age really should steer clear of marijuana because of the THC can really have an impact. And there's concerns, of course, in pregnancy and, and miscarriage and preterm labor. Well, it turns out that estrogen from the ovary increases the production of anandamide. Now, people who have read or anything about marijuana, they know that THC can also make people get munchies, right? They can make, they get, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm gonna eat a lot, but it also makes them feel happy, you know? So it's interesting that these things actually happen in our menstrual cycle. That's, and it's like amazing because as estrogen levels rise and then you have this giant spike that precedes ovulation, that's when anandamide spikes in terms of its levels. When estrogen spikes, anandamide spikes. Well, like everything in the body, there's a feedback system. So when you have high anandamide, it actually downregulates the production of estrogen. So first estrogen causes an andamide to go up and then an andamide causes estrogen to go down. That's why right after that big spike of estrogen, you have a big drop of estrogen. And then you also then, because estrogen is down, it, there's a big drop of an andamide. And then the endocannabinoid system production stays really low. And then progesterone starts to be produced and progesterone suppresses the production of these endocannabinoids. And then the endocannabinoids stay really low if the person gets pregnant, it stays low through the whole pregnancy and then rises right as labor. It actually is in, it's instituting and initiating labor with the rise of the endocannabinoid production. So you can see there's this incredible correlation and relationship between these two. Well, it turns out that when women have metabolic disorder, they often will have regulation of their menstrual cycle disorder. Their periods are off and their endocannabinoid system is off. And they actually have a dysregulation of anandamide and they have too much. 
So they have this surplus of endocannabinoids. So you can actually think of metabolic syndrome as sort of a surplus of the endocannabinoids, particularly of the anandamide. And it turns out that you get like a resistance to it and you get dysregulated eating because anandamide like THC has an impact on appetite and appetite regulation. So women who have PCOS and also people with metabolic syndrome have a complete dysregulation of their appetite system through a dysregulation of the endocannabinoid system. And because the endocannabinoid system is heavily related to the immune system and the GI tract and brain and emotions. So it, you have a dysregulation of emotions of mm -hmm. the gut a lot of dysregulation of the gut and also of the immune system. And that's all now manifesting in women with PCOS, but nobody understood any of these interrelationships until really, really recently. So that's why women with PCOS have a state of chronic, low, consistent inflammation because they have a dysregulation of their endocannabinoid system, which also helps to regulate the immune system. And as well, Estrogen has a direct effect. So there's a direct and an indirect effect on the immune system, both through the endocannabinoid system that's dysregulated and through estrogen being in too low a quantity. So it turns out that like everything in the body, there's the, the push-pull, the balance. Well, you have different receptors in the endocannabinoid system, CB1 and CB2, and you know you have this imbalance and it may be that when you, if you give something like hemp, and we need more data because hemp, the cannabis that comes from hemp doesn't have any of the THC type of mm -hmm. property. Right. It doesn't have CBD. that. So right. it doesn't right. have that. It just has CBD and friends, you know, they, mm -hmm. like it's entourage, um, the entourage effect, but it doesn't have THC so that it may actually help because you have this over of the anandamide, it's like this over and then you get resistance and it's just totally dysregulated that you may help to push it back into balance by giving you know, the, the ones that are balancing out the CB1 receptors with the CB2 receptors. And, and it gets way more complex because there are all these other receptors that we now know that are impacted, including ones that are heavily related, related to metabolism like the PPAR receptors. So, but it may turn out that, and we need more data on this, but giving hemp-based cannabis products, you know, the CBD mm -hmm. and, and friends, I call it CBD and friends, <laughs> that you may help to balance out this dysregulation of your own endogenous, your own internal endocannabinoid system. So, you know, it's really exciting to look at some of these balances. We know that women, for example, with endometriosis sometimes benefit because they have a complete dysregulation of their um, immune systems within their pelvis that goes kind of crazy, creating all that out of control inflammation that mm -hmm. leads to um, all that, you know, the inflammation associated with endometriosis. But so, and by the way, just as a side note, um, women with PCOS have significantly higher rates of uterine fibroids and endometriosis than the average population of women. So it's not uncommon to say that, to find that these conditions can all be in the same woman's body. So, you know, so it's really an interesting thing just because a woman has endometriosis or PCOS doesn't mean she doesn't also have the other or uterine fibroids. So all of these things, it's like, you know, like how much bad luck can you have? Well, we have to go back to, well, there's also good luck because you have this underlying 
you know, ability to become really healthy, but you know, you, because of your immune system dysregulation, you have more chances of having multiple problems when you have PCOS, but you know, and, and I am uh, excited to continue to learn more about the relationship of the endocannabinoid system and its dysregulation in women with PCOS. And in terms of fertility, the dysregulated endocannabinoid system may be very much um, part of the reason for the high rates of miscarriages in women with PCOS. And even when they go through like IVF, that's why I say to you know, all of my patients and all of you listening out there, that even if you do end up, just like I said, a certain percentage will need to go on pharmaceuticals, you know, 90% lifestyle only, but some need pharmaceuticals. Well, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, there will be some percentage that we just can't get pregnant. And we do need to do something like the advanced reproductive technologies, like mm -hmm. in vitro fertilization. That's not a failure. It's just, but here's the thing. Once people, women go into, couples go into IVF, there's a very high failure rate. The, the highest failure rate of any group that goes into IVF is women with PCOS. So what is my goal? Even if you end up with IVF, you want to improve your chances of success in every stage of it, not just getting pregnant, but not having a miscarriage, not having pregnancy related complications and not having a baby who is genetically altered, epigenetically modified so that the baby turns out to have higher risk of diabetes and infertility and such, you know, when that child is growing up. So we want to get everyone optimally healthy before they try to become pregnant, no matter what they end up doing for getting uh, fertility help if they have to, because we'll dramatically improve their, their chances of everything turning out right. Well, it turns out that it's the most fascinating thing ever, but the endocannabinoid system is completely related to how it turns out that the embryo, the blastocyst, that's the stage that it's in, how it actually implants into the uterine wall. You need to have the exact amount and the exact relationship of the endocannabinoid system. And the area of the uterus where the, the embryo, the blastocyst will actually implant has the lowest amount of endocannabinoids in that little section of the uterus than any other section of the uterus. And it, when you see, they actually have photos, you know, these amazing photos that show the muscle fibers of the uterus actually parting like the Red Sea. They actually go into swirls and they actually move apart and then the little embryo actually goes in. It's, a, it's the most amazing thing that's happening and it's actually critically important that you not only have plenty of progesterone and part of the reasons that you need the high progesterone is because progesterone suppresses the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid production. So, and it, it's just, it, this just opens up and then you get this really great implantation, which may not be happening properly in women with PCOS because of these dysregulations, but by getting the lifestyle stuff first, for just a few months, you can tremendously impact all of this, all of these metabolic dysregulations and allow fertility to occur, hopefully, and in most cases, spontaneously and naturally, but even when you need IVF, you'll have 
a much greater success rate. So it's so important. So, you know, it's it's a lot of complicated stuff, but I'm, I'm really kind of excited that you brought up the endocannabinoid I'm system. so glad we talked about it. That's yeah. super interesting. We highly recommend CBD, you know, to help with sleep and inflammation. And anxiety. I've read that it's helped with anxiety and in, insulin resistance and all of the things that women are with PCOS are struggling with metabolically. And speaking of IVF, I just wanted to also talk about inositol supplements because oh, I've cool. found that so many people are getting pregnant, you know, ovulating regular periods by taking inositol. And it's honestly such a shame that oftentimes we go to the doctor's office and we're handed birth control. We're not told a single thing about inositol and it's miraculous benefits. Same I want to say with like metformin too. and, you know, metformin as yeah. well. So, Oh, you know, so the inositols are fascinating. They really are fascinating. So in terms of the inositols, and by the way, inositol, they, it can be used in high doses for, believe it or not, anxiety. And that's wow. um, actually well known in the integrative medicine world that high doses of inositol can help with anxiety. And it probably does that through helping to produce more estrogen in the brain. So it's really interesting because the brain can also produce estrogen and that in turn is going to affect the endocannabinoid system. And it's all, in fact, a lot of people now think that the um, anti-anxiety effect of estrogen is through the endocannabinoid system in the brain. But in terms of in the ovary, it turns out that as I mentioned, there's this problem with converting testosterone into estrogen in the ovary through action of the enzyme called aromatase. Well, it turns out that the inositols are critically important for actually having ovulation and the conversion of testosterone into estrogen. So we did not know this also, and we didn't understand even what the mechanism was, and there's multiple mechanisms. But in the ovary, it turns out that there is another enzyme, it's called, and this is also in other organs, but this enzyme is called epimerase. So epimerase is essential to convert dechiroinositol into myoinositol. And it's myoinositol in the ovary that helps um, to like trigger the function of aromatase to convert testosterone into estrogen. And you need to have that because once again, you cannot ovulate unless you have this giant spike of estrogen. Well, you can't get that giant spike of estrogen if you're not making estrogen. And you can't make it if you, if you don't have proper epimerase and then you also have proper aromatase action. So that's why for the ovary, the type of inositol that you want is myoinositol not dechiro. Dechiro inositol will actually, if you have too much of it, it actually can block, like a lot of things in the body. If you have too much, it blocks things. So it's actually too much dechiro in the ovary will actually block the proper function of this enzyme epimerase. And then you will not have the proper amounts of myoinositol. So you don't want to give a ton of dechiro inositol, yeah. Yeah. especially in women with PCOS because they're having problems already with their epimerase. It doesn't work right, right anyway. So, and that may be actually a big part of why the aromatase isn't working is actually going back a notch to epimerase. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, and that's and, probably why the 40 to one ratio is so common, the 40 to one ratio of myo and dechiro and acetal when people look for the supplement. And we can, we, and yeah, I can, I'll touch on that too. Mm -hmm. So, right. So in the, what they have found 
and is that in different parts of the body, you can have different ratios of D-chiro and myo-inositol. So let me explain what they are, D-chiro, inositol versus myo-inositol. So inositols are a family of something like six forms. They all look alike in terms of their molecular structure. So if you wrote them out on a piece of paper, they would all have the same carbon and oxygen and, and um, hydrogen. They would all the same exact formula. The difference is they're 3D, they're, they're called stereotactic. So for example, this is my arm. Now it's still my arm if I go like this, if I go like this, if I go like that, it's still my arm. But what I'm doing is I'm changing its 3D, right? So yeah. the stereoisomers of inositol, they're all exactly the same formulation, but they're arranged differently in space. And that's the difference. And like fascinating, they're stereo, they call them stereoisomers. So they're all mm -hmm. the same formula, just different in space. Okay, so, um, which of course ultimately matters. Now it turns out that in the liver, D-chiro inositol is really important for the functions of the liver that have to do with glucose regulation. The liver is like a metabolic powerhouse and it's the liver that actually is very key to glucose production from glycogen stores. And when you don't have enough D-chiro-inositol, then you have dysfunction of the liver and it can produce un, you know, untold amounts of not needed glucose. And you have problems with glucose transport into the cells as well. So D-chiro-inositol is important for glucose metabolism mm -hmm. in the liver and also transporting through the cell membrane, the glucose into the cells. So that's what D-chiro-inositol does. So you have this sort of difference in the different parts of the body as to what these inositols are doing. So it turns out that if you give only myo-inositol, then maybe you won't have enough D-chiro-inositol. And if you give all D-chiro-inositol, then you will be suppressing ovarian function that needs myo-inositol. Yeah. So, Exactly what is going to be right, nobody knows. You have to, we have to be honest because when we look at inositols and their ratios, they really are not the same in different tissues. And they've looked at like the ratios in the ovary are not gonna be the same as in the, in the blood that's circulating. It's not gonna be the same as in the liver. But um, there were some researchers, I think predominantly in, in Italy that used that ratio of one to 40 and um, they came out with good results. Um, we need more data, but we know that using the one to, to 40 is a do no harmer. It's not gonna do any harm. Some people think, well, maybe we should have a formulation that has maybe higher D-chiro, maybe that's too small an amount, especially for metabolic functions. Um, some people do fine just by doing other things to regulate glucose regulation, because there's a lot of other stuff, you know, that can be helpful for glucose regulation as well, and um, just giving the myo-inositol. So these are sort of individual decisions that it's good to do with someone who can be either um, a physician, a life coach, a health coach, or, you know, a nutritionist, yeah. or someone who knows something about PCOS and the individual's situation, because some people may have um, you know, they don't have so much dysregulation of their metabolism, but they just don't ovulate. And then someone right. is really already diabetic and they really definitely need more of the D-chiro because their metabolism is so messed up. 
So yeah. that's where some individualization comes in. But all of this data is published. It's really fascinating. And most of the conventional doctors aren't even paying the least bit of attention. And um, it even gets more interesting because the um, inositols, particularly the myo-inositol in the ovary, not only, but it may also be with the dechiros. It's where we need more data. But what we, they found is that not only does it help with just generally ovulating, but it also improves the quality of the eggs and the quality of the embryo when it's made. So, I mean, and, and more successful implantation. So we know this is way more involved and way more beneficial than just ovulating. You get better everything, better eggs, better embryos, better success rates with IVF as well. And there's quite yeah. a bit now published on that. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the inositols. And I think even yeah. when you don't give huge doses, it does see um, some benefits in terms of mood. Yeah. And speaking of the data too, I know there's two research studies happening right now in one in Penn State and the one in Baylor uh, using a 40 to one ratio of inositols. So hopefully that'll at least give us some more data on to, to see like what is the proper ratio that may be uh, better for at least, you know, a, a good percentage of women with PCOS. Absolutely. And it's really good to have independent research, you know, not just yeah. the people manufacturing the product and selling exactly. it. Right. Yeah. right. Agreed. And we need this. And then I hope that they'll do other studies with other ratios because, you know, we know now that the ratios are not the same in every organ. It's not standard everywhere, you know. So we definitely need more data, but it's nice that some some doctors are now interested because in the US every year it seems like less money is allocated by the NIH for research for women with PCOS, not more, it's every year, it's less. And a lot of the research is coming out of other countries on the planet because the US is so far behind in terms of PCOS research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like we're not putting an emphasis on, on the importance of ovulation, whether or not you want to have a child. And oftentimes we're just handed birth control and told to come back when we feel like having a child. And it's like completely disregarding the importance of progesterone and ovulating naturally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, let's shut the whole thing down because we don't know what's wrong and then pick up where we left off in 10 years. So, Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because unfortunately that has been the approach for many medical problems, like for autoimmune problems, instead of trying to get to underlying it, excuse me, underlying issues and so forth and healing the gut and doing other things. It's like, let's just shut down the immune system or some big portion of the immune system. For women with menstrual dysfunction, and it could be any menstrual dysfunction, anything from PMS to menstrual cramps to heavy periods, irregular periods. And of course, women with PCOS can have all of the above that um, it's just shut down the system, you know, get rid of it. And that is completely ignoring the fact that we need those hormones. And mm -hmm. I don't mean phony baloney stuff that comes in a pill, which is not human identical and has completely different effects and a lot of very negative effects. But you need, like what we started with saying, you need the real hormones in the right amounts at the right time. And that's the beautiful rhythms of a woman's body. And these rhythms, just like I mentioned, the endocannabinoid system has a rhythm that's totally in sync with the rhythms of the menstrual cycle. All of everything in the body has a rhythm. We have daily rhythms, that's the circadian rhythm. We even have rhythms within the day. We call them ultradian rhythms, you know, like pulsating rhythms during the day. And of course, women have the beautiful lunar rhythm, the menstrual cycle 
And then of course there are even seasonal rhythms. So, you know, we're different at different times of the, the year, different seasons, just as all animals are. That's why there's different, like they call it breeding season. What the heck is that? Of course, it's when animals are more likely to breed. And there's a reason for that. It's all about survival. You know, when is it best to deliver a newborn? You know, when are you most likely to survive? That's why in the, like Bambi, all those babies were born in the spring because they're more likely to have food and they'll survive and get fat and then they can survive through the winter. So, you know, it's all programmed into us and it's not optional. It's actually in our genes to, to have all these beautiful rhythms. When you're on birth control pills, you have no rhythms. You have none. And these hormones like estrogen and progesterone, but I always focus on estrogen is like Batman and progesterone is, you know, like Robin. They're like, it's a sidekick, but they're both critically important. They, they need each other, right? So when you have estrogen um, in the body, every organ in the body is going to be happy. Estrogen made by the ovaries. There are receptors for estrogen, estradiol, in every single organ. And that's not an accident. It's because nature expected that a fertile woman would have to be healthy. I mean, isn't it like when you think about it, how could any doctor, although this is commonplace, think that reproduction is like just one little part that you could just like take or leave. You, know, you just take it or leave it. It's like, you can have long or short hair. It really doesn't affect how your body functions, right? If you cut your hair, you're still the same person. If you lop off reproduction, you're not the same person because those hormones are not about just making babies. They're about keeping the entire body healthy so mm -hmm. that you can have a healthy pregnancy, a healthy mom and do it over and over and have healthy children. Nature made it so it's one body serving one prime directive, whether we like it or not, which is to have healthy reproduction. And that requires a healthy body. So estrogen is everywhere throughout the body in every single organ. When you get rid of, and all those organs have rhythms, they all have clock genes. They all work in sync with the master clock and they have their own in, inborn um, clock genes to keep everything working together. And when you get rid of the beautiful rhythms, the circadian, the ultradian, the lunar, the seasonal, you get rid of all the rhythms and you just give this phony baloney hormones that are not human identical, were never designed to be in a body, have completely different effects on the receptors and work on not even just estrogen receptors, often like the progestins, the pretend progesterones, they work on other receptors like androgen receptors and aldosterone receptors that's like mm. involved in fluid and electrolyte regulation. I mean, they're like all over the place. They work on some of the um, cortisone receptors. Like, you know, it's like crazy. They, they do all kinds of weird things and they have a lot of side effects and they're actually all recognized by the US government on the NIH National Institutes of Health websites as endocrine disruptors, just like plastic just like flame retardants, they're, they're wow. endocrine disruptors. And if you think about it, they were invented to disrupt the normal hormones so you can't yeah. be fertile. And mm -hmm. so that's a bad sign. You know, ancient peoples understood that fertility was a vital sign of health. And the menstrual cycle is a vital sign of female well-being. That's why they had fertility gods, because that would be a sign of health not just fertility, they're all together. Fertility is a sign of health in a woman. A regular, normal, healthy menstrual sign is a sign of a healthy woman. And it's like a red flag when a woman has an abnormal menstrual cycle, something is wrong with her. The solution isn't take down her ovarian function, it's fix the woman. 
and fix the underlying problem so she can actually be healthy and thrive and feel good. Mm-hmm. And none of that happens on birth control pills. So birth control pills, if you look at the array of side effects, they're like increasing blood clots. Well, women with PCOS innately, because they're inflamed and they have dysregulated estrogen, they are innately more prone to blood clots. That's a fact. Birth control pills increase the risk of blood clots. That's a fact. There's now published studies showing that when you put the two together, you're increasing it even more. Like that's crazy. You know, we don't give birth control pills to women who are smoking because it's bad for them. If it was so good for them, we would say everyone who smokes should go immediately on birth control pills. Or how about 65 year old women? Let's put them all on birth control pills. It's so good for them. (laughs) Well, we don't do that because we know that it increased the risk of heart attack and stroke and high blood pressure. So, uh, and you know, so we're not going to do that. It increases blood clotting. That is a very bad sign. Blood yeah. clots occur naturally in a person who's doing the right thing to prevent hemorrhage. Right? That's why you would clot your blood so you don't bleed to death. Right? And that's part of the inflammatory response of the body as part of our survival mechanism. But when you have chronic low level inflammation, you're more prone to blood clotting because your immune system is now in a dysregulated state. And Mm -hmm. that's what birth control pills do. They create a metabolic dysregulated state that makes women more prone to metabolic dysfunction, which includes blood clots and hypertension, heart attacks and strokes. Women with PCOS already have higher risk for all those things. What the heck are we doing to giving to give them birth control pills? The fact that they're still young, so even though they have a higher risk, they're still more likely not to have one of those outcomes in the short run. What are yeah. we doing to them in the long run? There's now mm-hmm. a recent paper published that showed that teenagers who got started on birth control pills have a lifetime increased risk of heart disease. A lifetime if you're started on birth control pills in your teen years. It's really hard to get data once you're over the teen years because it's like everyone is on it. That's the problem. You know, it's like 90 plus percent of women are on birth control pills or similars during their life. So where's the control group? There is no control group. But for teenagers, you can get sort of a control group because not all teenagers yet are on birth control pills. Although now it seems like, you know, in a high school, all the girls are on birth control pills and it's crazy bad. It's increasing their risk of dying prematurely. Is anyone telling their moms that? Is anyone giving informed consent? uh, How about the fact that it significantly increases the risk of cervical cancer? So we give them HPV vaccines and then we give them birth control pills. They have exactly the opposite effect on cervical cancer. This is like a crazy maker situation. Yeah. And And somehow uh, the default, it's somehow the default thing that's recommended in like a lot of cases. 100% of the time. And that's all they know. And um, that that has to stop. Of course, I'm not in favor of people having pregnancies when they're not interested and not ready. But number one, we need to define the problem if we're going to find other solutions. I mean, you just have to be honest. Nothing can be too big to fail. It just can't be. We can't say, like, for example, I'm just going to make this up, although it kind of sounds true. Like we put like too much fluoride in our water and it's poison. Okay, you probably knew that, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, so we we have to say at some point we made a big mistake, we have to take all that fluoride out of the water that we can't like poison people, you know, Um, and that even like the government said we like overdosed everybody on fluoride. So we got (laughs) to stop it, we have to stop it. So if we can't say we poisoned all the women with birth control pills, but we're just going to keep doing it, we just don't care, we have to be honest about it and say that these are chemical endocrine disruptors 
that are actually creating harm in these women's bodies. It's not killing them instantly. Mm-hmm. Look, you can give people arsenic for a long time before they die. You know, it's still poison, right? Poison is poison, whether it's slow poison or rapid poison. And mm-hmm. we need to be honest about it. And women with PCOS are especially susceptible to the harms. And I can see when, you know, and now I have to be, give, them, give it some fair due to be well-balanced here because birth control pills suppress ovarian function, there will be less testosterone. Also, it increases through the liver, the production of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, which also binds up the testosterone. Mm -hmm. So by lowering testosterone, you can improve acne, okay? So, but there are other ways to deal with that problem besides doing what we just described, besides taking down the ovaries and not letting any ovarian function or any rhythms. The other problem with the sex hormone binding globulin is that in some women, and actually fair number, it never comes down. We don't even know what we're doing. What happens when you're older and you have this really high level of sex hormone hormone binding globulin and it's binding up your sex hormones and we don't even know what we're doing. I mean, these, some of these long-term effects, nobody's even looked at. We do know that when you start women at a young age on birth control pills, you also can affect their musculoskeletal development. They're gonna have less functional um, and healthy muscles, uh, ligaments, tendons, bone as well. Their vaginal tissues don't develop properly. They're more prone to having painful intercourse, um, sexual problems, a small bladder, because estrogen is very key to skin health. A lot of people don't realize that. Estrogen is, that's why after menopause, women start looking a lot older because without estrogen, you lose collagen, elastin that keeps skin elastic and, and you know keeps it filled out and you lose um, the hyaluronic acid, which keeps in the moisture. So your skin gets all dry and wrinkly mm-hmm. and you lose the protective barrier functions. And My so sister, she was having arthritis after getting off of birth control. And it wasn't until she went gluten and dairy. Now, if she eats gluten or dairy, she gets like a sudden feeling of arthritis in her hands, you know, well, shortly afterwards. Well, the other thing that happens with um, birth control pills is that it increases your risk of developing autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. because um, of altered gut function, leaky gut, and it alters your immune system. So it makes you more prone to developing chronic low grade, like sort of the invisible infections, the chronic yeah. low grade infections in the mucosal linings. Like for example, women on birth control pills are more prone to getting more bladder infections and vaginal infections, and they're more likely to acquire sexually transmitted disease. Um, so there's a lot of issues. and their skin and their, their muscle, their whole musculoskeletal system. And the bladder is part has like skin like lining. And so the bladder doesn't develop properly. So it doesn't stretch well. So they have small bladder capacity. So if you ever see any young women or middle-aged women, and they're always like looking for a bathroom, I call that bathroom mapping. It's like, you know, wherever you go, it's like, where's the bathroom? Like, didn't you just go? It's like, we'll have to go again. Or they're like a dog in a fire hydrant. Like, oh, oh the bathroom, I'll go. It's like, you just went. No, well, I'll go to that bathroom. They're yeah. always like, peeing because their bladders feel full so readily because they don't really distend. They're not flexible mm-hmm. and, and nothing is flexible. Their joints aren't flexible. Things are ripping and tearing. They're more prone to, you know, in, inflammation in their joints. They're more yeah. prone to um, like so many bad things like Hashimoto's thyroiditis is so much more common in women who've been on birth control pills and they're not even yeah. being tested for it. 
And they were already, they were already susceptible to it if they had PCOS before getting off birth, getting on birth control. Yeah. You got it. So now that's why so many women with PCOS have uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. A lot of the doctors don't even look for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I think like 30% of women with PCOS have a thyroid dysregulation and it's completely overlooked. And it's probably more because like I said, you know, most of the doctors aren't even checking for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have so many, like I could go on and on. We have to have you back on our podcast. Yeah, for sure. There's so many topics. Well, you know, these are such important things for people to hear because they're not, they're not hearing it. And, you know, they're suffering and they don't know where to turn and they don't know what to do. And it's just, it just breaks my heart, you know, to see what goes on and, you know, and it doesn't mean, you know, about pregnancy. It's like you said, you know, it's about having hormonal balance and metabolic homeostasis so that you could be a healthy, happy woman. And this is just not happening for women with PCOS because they're just being overdrugged, but with no end in sight and no clear understanding by anybody as to what you're actually doing to the body. No mm-hmm. exit strategy off no the breath way, control. No. Yeah. I'm so glad that I bumped into you on Google when I was searching for doctors after I was diagnosed. Because I literally was the stereotypical situation, just told, go on birth control, no explanation, no reasoning, no other recommendation. I was so confused, went on Google, found you, learned so much, took some time to apply it to my life because you did say a lot of recommendations. (laughs) You know, it's hard. It's It's a lifestyle. It's hard. It's no, let's not, you know, we don't want to dummy it down. It's hard. You have to be strong, resilient, but everyone has it in them to yeah, take especially the women with PCOS. Yeah, they do. Yeah. These are the women, the leaders. Remember, you're the mm-hmm. leaders of the tribe. You just, you know, somebody stepped in front of you. You need to get them out of the way again. <laughs> exactly. I love that. I love that. Right. Well, one last question before mm-hmm. we go. What does an ideal day of food look like for you? Well, I happen to love whole grains. A lot of people have poor, you know, I've defended defenseless. Like I have to defend organic soy. I also defend um, organic whole grains. So one of my favorite whole grains is amaranth, which is a gluten-free grain, one of the ancient grains. So Mm. I would just love a bowl and I put in all kinds of seeds and nuts and a little bit of usually if I can, like some fresh fruit, I just chop it in. Um, But I'll also use maybe a little bit of chopped up organic dates. By the way, don't be afraid of dates. Don't do a ton of it. But dates are not what gives people diabetes. It's eating processed garbage and eating in the middle of the night and not going to bed at the right time and all these (laughs) other things that gives people and and, and all the environmental toxicants that are out there, the pollution, everything. It's not eating organic dates, okay? But you can put a little bit in and then I love organic soy milk. You know, that's where I defend soy milk. Soy is actually when it's organic and it's whole, not processed into like pretend, uh, you know, cheese ice cream or, you know, hot dogs or something. It actually is a fertility food. You know, it's like there's actually published data that organic whole soy, unless you have a sensitivity, you know, some people have sensitivities to any food, which is um, not an indictment of the food. It's just what's happened to your gut and so and your immune system. But um, so then I like to put that in and um, 
I love to have like a yam. So I would love like a, a side of a yam. So this would be like <laughs> one of my favorite breakfasts would be, and it's a big bowl and it really fills you up and it holds you and has protein and then, you know, the yam and then um, all the nuts and seeds adds a lot of healthy fats. Yeah. So I'm getting lots of fats. And, um, and also the soy milk also has a lot of protein in it. This is a pretty high protein food. You know, soy is a high protein food. So, and then um, I love um, salads. So I would love for lunch to, and I put everything under the sun into a salad. Now, <laughs> um, now, so I try to have a big breakfast and a big lunch and then um, a very small dinner. Mm. And so I would have a salad that would be like really big and have in it like every kind of vegetable you can imagine. And uh, sometimes um, I usually have no more than three ounces of an animal protein in a day. Sometimes I don't have any, but um, that's what was actually called the sustainability diet that came out mm -hmm. of the Harvard School of Public Health. Sustainable for the planet as well as for the individual, because you know our planet has so many billions of people they can't support raising all those feedlot animals. And and yeah. if, if you say I'm going to get free range and I'm going to get you know pasture, you know, you know, pastured and all that. There's not enough space on this planet to do that and feed everyone all those animals. So I try to really limit to no more than three ounces. And That's I great. will do like the, the free range chicken or I actually because I grew up with this. So I actually like anchovies and sardines. I know it's not everybody's taste, but they're really full of protein and omega three. So I do like to eat um, sardines, you know, wild caught sardines. And I'll put that also sometimes like into the salad. I'll get one gram of omega-3 that way. And then um, for dinner, I like sometimes like a little bowl of soup, just really light. But I drink it with a little teaspoon. So it, it keeps me busy for a long time. And then um, for my dessert, I and now this is not to everyone's taste, but um, I get organic cocoa powder, just 100% cocoa powder. And I mix it with water in a giant mug that looks like a soup bowl. And then I put in another little splash of either a nut milk, like, you know, hemp milk or almond milk. And um, I don't add any sweetener because to me, the, the, the nut milks have sweetness naturally to them. To me, they just do. And that's my giant dessert. It's like really chocolatey. And, you know, there's so much data now on the health benefits of cocoa, you know, and it's, you know, the one that you have no sugar added, there's like zero sugar added to this. It's amazing how few calories is in this. Yeah. And it's all fat. It's all healthy fat, the cocoa, you know, the cocoa butter fat. And um, so that would probably be one of my favorite days of food. And then <laughs> I would, you know, and I would also, I left out that I probably also with, when I make my salad with lunch, I put in fruit because I put everything under the sun into that bowl, you know, so it's all kinds of vegetables and it's cooked vegetables that are now cold plus, you know, raw vegetables, you know, there's mm -hmm. like nothing that's off the, um, off the, the menu when it comes to putting it into my salad bowl. So anything can go. Yeah. And I also like to put in some fruit too. And, and then my favorite dressing would be some like balsamic, a little bit of balsamic vinegar and maybe that's, a drop yeah. of, of really high quality um, olive oil. So um, that, that would be like perfect day of food for me. I love amazing. that. Amazing. We I, need to step it up. Yeah, I love the three ounce rule. That's actually like a, a great, great idea. As well as the like, I love how like you, you don't have any processed foods in your diet. It's like it's all like no. real natural, right. naturally occurring foods. No gluten, yeah, no dairy. Not. No, I've been dairy and gluten free for so many years. I can't even remember anymore. Yeah. I, it's probably probably getting close to 20 years. And um, I don't miss it at all. You know, honestly, there's so many good things that are out there that are 
dairy and gluten-free, like it's like nothing to me. I don't even think twice about it anymore. You know, yeah. me too. Not, not at all. I mean, I can, well, maybe once in a blue moon when I see someone eating like a homemade croissant, but then I move on. <laughs> right. I, I only think move on. Yeah. <laughs> I move on really fast. It's like, really there's fast. always something else. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Italian's been gluten dairy free for a long time. I, I'm like 95% gluten dairy free. The only time I have cheese is basically when Italian puts it in my sandwich, but that's my only, that's my only time. <laughs> well, and I want to say that I, for everyone, like gluten isn't intrinsically evil. There are some really mm-hmm. healthy foods that have gluten. Like if you had organic barley or organic rye, mm-hmm. um, they're hard to get. Don't get the, the non-organic. And excuse me, they have gluten, but they're not, they're not evil foods. But yeah. for so many of us who have like leaky gut syndrome or autoimmune and PCOS, you know, any kind of gut issues and all these other things, even like metabolic dysfunction, you know, we just, for some, you know, gluten, there's a lot of autoimmunity, a lot of sensitivity, and it's intrinsically a little bit irritating to the gut. But for people who are incredibly healthy, that could be you, you know, they're really healthy. There's nothing really wrong with them. They've been like eating really good food from the get go and their moms were Mm. healthy when they were pregnant with them and all that good stuff. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about eating like organic rye or organic barley and um, sm- um, spelt, you know, they, there are some, you know, really farro. These are some of them ancient grains that have gluten. It's just that I can tell you for most of my patients, it's off the menu because they don't, they don't meet the, the criteria of being like really healthy. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So not happening for my patients. And, and um, it doesn't work for me because like so many PCOS women, um, I do have Hashimoto's, which I've been also able to overturn by doing my kind of diet, you know, but I'm not going back. I'm not, you know, uh, that's, there's no croissant on this planet. That's worth <laughs> autoimmune disease. It's not worth it's the that. gluten-free one only. Isn't that the truth? I swear there is no croissant on yeah. this planet. That's worth <laughs> having the PCOS symptoms come back Yeah. or no. piece of cheese. No, if you've lived through like unremitting acne, no periods, infertility, like, no, like when you think about when you look at the scale, you say croissant or all that other bad stuff, you say off the table, right? Exactly. I mean, I see the cystic acne come back when I even have one square of cheese consistently every day for a week, you know, or if I started, let's say I've never done this, but I imagine if I started eating gluten again, the scale would just go up and up and up irregular periods, all the symptoms. I'm not here for it. (laughs) No, not worth it. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should talk about this on another episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Dive into diet. Always to be continued. Absolutely. Because see, the story never ends. I know that's a cliche, but it's so true. That's what's about cliches are always true. (laughs) (laughs) For any sister listening, though, we we highly recommend reading PCOS SOS. It's a great book if you're newly diagnosed or in the middle of your PCOS journey. It's a great way to learn about your PCOS and just get down to like, like as Dr. Felicia Gersh mentioned, like getting down to the root underlying issues and connecting with nature in a lot of ways and just like, um, you know, managing symptoms. Back on the rhythm. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. And huh? Before we go, if there's uh, any way um, our listeners can contact you, if they're maybe seeking help or just to learn more from your resources, is there a website they could go to? Sure. Well, yeah, my, my office website, and there's an email box there is um, integrative, M-G-I, 
Com. So it's my group is uh, Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. So we have the website is integrativemgi.com. And I have an Instagram live show at dr period. They have to put the period in dr period Felice Gersh. And I'm doing lots and lots of um, Instagram live shows and they are all curated on my YouTube channel. And uh, so I'm you know, love to have people join me and mm -hmm. like me because I'm not a social media, you know, mega star. That's not, I'm a doctor, you know, I, I take care of patients in my office every day, like today, <laughs> today I was seeing patients all day long and that's my primary mission. But my secondary mission is to help women who can't come to see me mm -hmm. for, you know, or even do telemedicine that I can help to educate them and provide them with the tools so that they can actually improve everything in their lives. Amazing. Wonderful. We will be watching. Oh, yeah. For and, sure. Yeah. And we'll put that in the podcast description, your website, as well as your Instagram. And definitely when the episode comes out, we'll be po posting in stories. So we'll, we'll try to get people, more people coming to your, to your channels for sure, because they, they need to hear you talk about all of this. Well, I'd love that. And if people want to come and see me, you know, like I said, I'm a brick and mortar practice where I see people in my office. I also do telemedicine. Um, fortunately, mm -hmm. we're allowed to do that now. That's great. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye. And thank you, especially Dr. Felix Grish, for coming here and being with us and answering all our questions. Thank you. Pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come check out The Sisterhood. It's my monthly membership site where sisters just like you are learning how to move through the stages of PCOS. From stage one, cold and alone at the doctor's office, to stage five, nailing the PCOS lifestyle, gluten and dairy free. Get ready to finally feel in control of your body again.